Welcome to The Threat Show, powered by Fletch. But what happens when in the future you're dealing with the security of AI algorithms? Are you prepared to understand the behavior of an AI algorithm that is perhaps building malware for somebody else? Hi, welcome to The Threat Show, powered by Fletch. I'm Darren Kinlan, VP of Technology, and joining me as always each week, every week, is Chris Wilder, Research Director at Tag Cyber. Hey, welcome back, Chris. Hey, Darian. Awesome. Awesome to see you as always. Likewise. Well, you know, we're joined this week also by a special guest, Dave Newman. Dave has had an expansive and impactful career serving in security operations and technology leadership roles, preceded by 28 years of service in the United States Air Force. Wow. He worked in a variety of roles for the Air Force, including serving as commander of the 92nd Information Operations Squadron, where he pioneered the Air Force's first cyber capability to identify, characterize, and eradicate advanced persistent threats that targeted critical Department of Defense IT systems. He then went on to become VP and CISO of Rackspace, an industry-leading multi-cloud solutions provider, and then served as global CISO at iHeartMedia, one of the largest audio companies in the world. Next, he was VP of security for the global supply chain at Dell Technologies. But now, Dave works alongside Chris at Tag Cyber, in addition to being an adjunct professor at the University of Texas at San Antonio and being a member of the board of advisors at SiteGain, a breach attack simulation company. Wow. Welcome to the show, Dave. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Pleasure. So we'll be talking with Dave a little bit more about his experience and advice for smaller cybersecurity teams shortly. But first, let's run through this week's threat landscape and trending threats. And what do we have in store for this week? Well, let's see. You know, we were kind of talking, I think, last week, Chris, about you know what we were thinking, the how the end of the quarter would shape up. And it seems like this week's been a little bit of a reprieve. You know, we had over what, 223 roughly last week. Yeah, now we're down yeah. about five. You know, I guess uh, there's a little bit of a silver lining in there. What, what are your thoughts? I don't know. I don't, I would never call it a silver lining. I would just say, I think the word you used reprieve is, is pretty apropos. It's, it's going to go up and down. It's, this is a, uh, it's not as volatile as the stock market, but this is it'll still remain consistent. And I think we'll we'll probably see an uptick as we start going into the summer months. Yeah. And you know, if we dig into this a little bit more, it looks like the amount of major threats that were previously tracked seem to have gone inactive, meaning we haven't seen anything in the past 30 days. Around 15 of those seem to kind of fall off the radar. But that said, we did see an uptick of the number of threats actually going mainstream, right? From eight to trending four to mainstream, total of 10. And that basically means four or more media outlets have started covering these particular topics. So while the total might be lower, it certainly is, is pretty active this week comparatively. Well, I think we're also seeing kind of some of the threats are being more platforms or, you know, platform or attack vector specific. So you're you're seeing a lot of folks exploiting initial attacks, initial breaches, and they're just going from there. I mean, we'll talk about Fortinet. I mean, Fortinet, <laughs> you know, we, this is what the fourth fourth week in a row that we've, we've been talking about Fortinet, and it's a different 
a different mechanism, but the same systems that they're going after. So I think it's there's there's a little bit of a feeding frenzy going on, and they're starting to just push these attacks into the into the shoot to you know to get them out the door. And I so I think that's part of why we're seeing so a decrease in the inactive ones, and then you know an increase on the emerging and then the mainstream attacks. Yeah, yeah. So let's dig into a little bit of these in more detail. So in terms of interesting threats for the past week, we have a handful of new vulnerabilities being discovered, a new malware family that was kind of found, as well as a threat group that seems to be on the rise. If we look further, right, when we talk about just the first remote code execution vulnerability discovered, it was actually found by a security researcher specifically related to Microsoft Word, where simply delivering a weaponized RTF file in an email attachment could compromise the victim without them having to do anything other than opening up the file. Low complexity, big impact, not great, I think even the details of the proof of concept were small enough to fit in a tweet, <laughs> yeah. which likely means we're probably going to see this weaponized pretty soon thereafter. If you're an organization that takes a while, waits for Patch Tuesday before rolling out anything related to Microsoft patches, you might want to do things earlier. But if you can't, you might want to consider just blocking RTF files altogether in the meantime. I know that's really difficult for a lot of organizations, but... This seems to be pretty serious. I'm curious your thoughts here, Chris. Yeah, I, I think Microsoft will come after this one pretty quick. I, to be honest, every time I open up Office I, or open up Word, I kind of think it's malware anyways. But, <laughs> but that's just me. No, I no, I think that, you know, this is this is kind of par for the course right now. And I, you're right, it will be weaponized very quickly. And hopefully Microsoft... You know, they're on a really, really good cadence and, and they're getting the patches out quickly. And hopefully organizations heed that heed that warning and they really start you know making sure that especially their office 365 and their other office environments they, that those are those are the first things patched because those are you know that's the that's the window into the world for most organizations that in the browser so kind of get cyber hygiene is, is is so important right now and you know I think Microsoft will respond in kind so I, I'm not too worried about this one. Yeah. I mean, thankfully it wasn't found in the wild, but that's not necessarily an indication of it won't ever be found in the wild. Yeah. You know, speaking of that, you mentioned Fortinet earlier, Chris. So it turns out that Fortinet, I think, is on their fourth wave of new vulnerabilities discovered within their platform for within the past two months, which is pretty amazing. You know, thankfully, this particular set of vulnerabilities was discovered internally using like internal code audits, which is great. You know, that's that's a nice benefit. But yeah. we kind of forecasted, you know, hey, where there's one particular vulnerability, there's likely going to be more as people start uncovering, you know, all of the different bugs and issues related to this platform. Still pretty serious. So... Again, if you're using Fortinet gear for any sort of network perimeter protections, you definitely want to keep them up to date because an attacker can load any sort of executables on those devices without any sort of authentication needed. You know, when we talk about weaponizing vulnerabilities, the last time a proof of concept, I think in the third wave of those vulnerabilities related to Fortinet was released, it took attackers maybe about four days before they started seeing applications of those vulnerabilities used in the wild which yeah. is not that not that slow honestly 
No, it's, this is just pretty, pretty typical. I mean, Dave and I talk a lot about this at TAG. You, you, you look at the, the various attacks and the various CVEs that pop up, they tend to come in, they tend to come in waves. So you have your initial attack and then it wanes, 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 and all of a sudden the next one comes up. And so, you know, you saw that with Suxnet. It's been 13 years and now we're seeing Suxnet ver- version 2.0 on critical infrastructure. The, this is This is very much akin to that. It's much shorter time cycle, but you know, once you find that one initial vulnerability, there's more and they go find more and they go find more and they go find more. And unfortunately, Fortinet's the target of the week. And who would have thought that, you know, hardware would be that much of a, much of an attack vector, but it's, you know, it's keys to the kingdom stuff there. So it's, it's definitely needs to be taken seriously, but, and, and I don't think Fortinet's doing a great job of responding to this because they just have never had to. Right. So, you know, but you know, the kind of trial by fire. I agree with Chris. I think we're going to continue to see a, uh, an increase on exploitation on this kind of this kind of capability. Right. To, to his point that these are the very, you know, locks that you you use uh, in your environment to protect it. So but then when you look at it in combination of the other vulnerabilities that you exploits that you're discussing, it makes it a really, really difficult kind of risk-based analysis when you're when you're going through these things. So if you're a customer of these platforms, then you know your expectation needs to be that you know you're going to have these things. And do you have the internal way to really respond and remediate them in a in a time and space that's that's less than the adversary to get to that four-day window that you're talking about? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's growing pains for a very popular uh security products company. Unfortunately, growing pains in this manner are are, are public <laughs> and it's it's tough as a customer, but I think every every major product out there, when it reaches a certain amount of popularity, usage, they're bound to become a target in this manner. This, this, I mean, there's a lot of things that SecOps teams and security teams and IT teams for that matter too, that they can, they can you know, just, it's gonna be hard to keep the bad actors out because they're going to come through a firewall. Most most attacks come through a misconfigured firewall, anyways. And it's it's what you do once they're inside is is really the value. So it's it's really good good network architecture, micro segmentation, those types of things are so important that you know you you can't keep them out, but you can you can at least control what they do once they're inside. And this is this is just something you know this is something for and that's got to this is their a fire that they've got to carry the burden of for right now, but it'll get better. And, and I think, but, but I think on the back end of it, you know, with good planning and good, good network architecture, it's, you know, you could alleviate a lot of the, a lot of the pain. Makes sense. So moving on to our next vulnerability, really focused on software supply chains. So if you use or author any sort of software as part of your core business, you probably have something like a continuous integration, continuous deployment system, also known as CICD, right? And Jenkins is by far one of the most popular platforms to kind of facilitate that in terms of a build system. Unfortunately, though, there is a new sets of vulnerabilities discovered within Jenkins. But it doesn't require the Jenkins server to directly be exposed to the internet. In fact, Aqua Nautilus researchers provided a pretty handy-dandy diagram which shows how an attacker basically publishes a malicious plugin to the Jenkins infrastructure. And then when you go and update your Jenkins plugin repositories, that causes the Jenkins server to 
get compromised, in which case now the Jenkins server is able to talk out to the attacker's infrastructure. Pretty bad. You know, if you don't maintain and you don't patch Jenkins regularly, you might want to consider just cordoning off Jenkins from talking anywhere outside of your infrastructure at all, even to the current Jenkins infrastructure provided by the, the vendor's cloud, just as a means of mitigating this issue, because it's, it's pretty serious. Th thankfully, though, Jenkins did patch their own infrastructure to prevent this in the future from happening. That said, is this the last of it? Who knows, right? That's kind of the big unknown at this point. So, I mean, Dave, I mean, good googly moogly, how many briefings and conversations a week do we have about software supply chain and the challenges? Like I just did a webinar on Circle CI and how that how bad that turned out to be. But I mean, just these threats in the CICD are so rampant. I, I, we probably have what, four or five a week at least? Yeah, the, and, the, and the broader implication here is just is is more around code resiliency and security yeah. itself, right? Not just the pipelines that are that are that are producing this code, but that whole thing in itself. And then you combine it into to the number of products. And if we just take, you know, the the technology industry in its own, I mean, the 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 laptop or desktop that most of your listeners are using here today. Think of how about how much hardware, software, and the diversity of the suppliers is in that. Now think about like how much the producer of that particular technology owns. It's it's probably less than 40% from, from a thing. So if you're running a Microsoft operating system and their apps, there you go. Um, if you got a NVIDIA component inside that, they make a bucket of, of, of software and so on and so forth. That's before you get to some of the at the on the application side where you you may be using an extensive number of SaaS applications. So it, it's just exponentially increasing the threat surface. But I think that we need to continue the drive toward greater code and resiliency. And quite frankly, there there's some organizational cultural things that will drive these teams together in order to deliver some of those things because we can't continue to play whack-a-mole. There's no effective way to do it when you're talking about potentially dozens, if not hundreds of companies that are involved in making code that go into products and platforms. Our advice to pretty much every enterprise and every DevOps organization we talk to is shift left. They have to put security up front when they're even planning what they want to do, as opposed to as an afterthought, which would alleviate a lot of a lot of these challenges. And they're not, these, these are hard problems to solve, but if you want to build code resiliency, you have to you have to have consideration up front as opposed to halfway through you know afterwards or whatever and yeah i 100 percent agree with you dave and but but we we share this pain <laughs> we share this burden it's a stupid example but i i always, one of my favorite plays in in high school was purple motion left shift right or blast right and so this idea of of shifting uh shifting left absolutely something we have to do but we need to be able to play on the right side. We need to really have a, a, a dynamic and integrated presence right where code is at the time and where it's being exploited to, to make sure that we do both of those things. So yes, shift left, blast right, because you eliminate a lot of that by doing that shift left. And I think you grow skills and muscle memory and, and better team integration by doing those things, but it's by no means a, the, the total panacea and we need to be able to blast on the right as well. Yeah. 
It's a shameless plug, by the way, that I played football in high school and I was really no good at it. And why I'm talking to you guys about cyber stuff today. So I, I thought I thought the Statue of Liberty play was yours. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, well, so we've covered a number of different vulnerabilities. Let's shift the focus to malware and specifically for our next interesting threat, it's actually malware discovered in small home office routers. Is this still a thing? Apparently it is. Lumen security researchers discovered that a number of different organizations had end of life, Drade Tech Vigor, I think VPN concentrators or routers that actually had laced malware, custom malware on it, in fact that would allow an attacker to basically wholesale dump and extract any unencrypted traffic on the wire. So why is this a thing, right? We're, we're now 2023. You'd think that most organizations would be using encrypted TLS comps for everything as far as their, their business. But apparently it's still a target for those organizations that haven't adopted this, you know, SSL or TLS everywhere model because the malware itself was configured to basically start pulling out information like mail or file sharing activity. Again, all unencrypted, right? But it's possible that in a future version of this malware, they might actually do TLS man in the middle inspection, in which case now suddenly encrypted traffic is also uh, potentially at risk. In terms of targeting, it's we're, we're talking like maybe 2,000, 3,000 organizations where this was discovered. It seems like the threat group behind this kind of wants to remain low key, but the other thing is, you know, for many organizations that don't bother updating or securing or patching their small home office equipment, this represents a, a pretty significant risk to their organization. So in terms of, you know, obviously not using end of life equipment, that's certainly one mitigation, making sure all of the comms is, you know, TLS encrypted, that's another one. But 2023, it's still happening, right? It, it clearly the attackers have gotten value out of this deployment and the strategy even now, which suggests that many organizations haven't even thought about, you know, protecting their back office systems in this way. Curious your thoughts here, Chris. Just take my my little town of 600 people here in Texas. We have a little municipal office building where, you know, our city council works and things like that. And when I accidentally became mayor out here, many years ago, the first thing I did was go in and change out all the all the hardware because it was incredibly old and and you know the mantra was if it's not broken, don't fix it. And I think a lot of small branch offices and small offices just carry that same same mentality. The the number one attack vector for DDoS attacks are Netgear home routers. <laughs> so if you ever run a Wireshark on your home and you have a Netgear router, you're going to see DDoS, 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 DDoS over and over and over again. For really no other reason, just slow down, slow down your internet. But these are easy These are easy targets, you know. There's a lot of these older routers out there that aren't updated. They need to be updated. They need to be changed out. Like I said, in Texas, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. That's kind of where, where we're at with this. But, you know, this, is, this just goes back to cyber hygiene. Exactly. We're, we're hanging a lot of important stuff off of these things now. You know, yeah. maybe it's your home solar system. Maybe it's your electric vehicle. Yeah. 
This is all software moving. And there's other critical that maybe it's medical gear that is life-sustaining that's in your home for somebody that needs that kind of stuff. So, and, and the problem is, is that most of this infrastructure is not maintained on any kind of a life cycle at the edge, like what we do in an application or, or a particular right. appliance. And so God knows my parents aren't doing this, right? You know, they just yeah. <laughs> use a password, let alone, uh, you know, paying attention to the thing. Chris and I both write for the quarterly journal and I, I wrote some articles on deep fake and I sent it to my folks and it was like, we, we started reading, but we didn't understand it. So, but that's not a dig on my parents, but this is similar, right? People just want this to be a utility. They want it to be electricity. They want it to be water. They want to turn it on and it needs to work. But unfortunately, mm. that's not the sustainment background, life cycle support background that it has. That's fair. So moving on to the final threat for today, it's actually a new malware variant linked to a Chinese-based APT, which is being called Sharp Panda, targeting other Southeast Asia organizations. Now, this has been going on for many, many years. That's really not what's new about this particular type of malware. But the malware sole framework actually has some interesting capabilities once a victim is compromised. The delivery is not so very much interesting. Again, it's, you know, weaponized Word document or RTF file, right? But once a victim's compromised by this malware, it actually waits before beaconing out to the internet. It's not automatic all the time. It's, they, they call it uh, radio silence mode, but this type of, uh, you know, scheduled beacon or scheduled uh, C2 traffic is not that surprising for an advanced persistent threat groups malware although this is a very recent iteration of that so if you expect you know a compromised system to look and smell and feel and act like it's compromised all the time keep in mind this sort of thing does exist and it's still being used even today yeah. when i see these these attacks coming across and you know since dave and i our backgrounds are very similar it's you know we tend to kind of take an eye towards what's going on and kind of geopolitics and what's going on in the world with the different conflicts. And and once you start seeing a lot of these malware, especially coming out of nation states, because Sharp Panda is, is a nation-sponsored bad actor group, it's usually either to gain intelligence or to, you know, compromise systems that could be used later. You know, I, I, I'm still convinced we're already in World War III, but I, I think that cyber cyber war is really going to start ramping up very, very quickly, especially with what's going on in Taiwan. So when I yeah. see these things, these things picking up, it's, it, it concerns me because this one seems nebulous, but it's it, by far not. Yeah. So we'll see how many other organizations elsewhere on the planet start getting impacted by similar types of threats. Yeah. It's not a matter of if, it's more a matter of when. I think at this point. Well, cool. I think that covers all of the threats that we had for the week. If you want to dive deeper into this week's trending threats, be sure to check out the interactive Fletch newsletter and Trending Threats app to see all the stories we talked about, peruse the threat index at your leisure, and more. Now, on to our special guest interview. Let's kind of switch gears next and have a deeper conversation with our guest today. Hey, Dave, how are you doing? Well, excellent. Now, what what a great rundown on what's going on in that space. And I 
absolutely sure that your listeners would really appreciate that kind of, not just the information sharing, but the richness of the, the content and the conversation. Now. So well done, guys. Thanks. Well, I mean, I'm curious from your perspective, you're working right now as supporting, I guess, University of Texas graduates focused in cybersecurity. What what makes you seem excited or nervous for the future of, of cybersecurity? So first of all, I, I guess what I would do is step back. When I was a CISO, a lot of people used to ask me, what keeps me up at night? And sure. uh, yeah. I think there's, there's an endless list of those things. But one of the things that was always near the top or at the top was, have I done enough to prepare my team for the fight? The fight happened tonight. Were they, were they ready? Have I done everything to, to really set those conditions for them? And that's quite, quite frankly, one of the reasons that I, I teach today. And it's one is as a way for me to give back. But I think that helping students that are that are on their own journey understand some of the realistic kind of conditions that they're going to be walking into. I think we do a great job academically at teaching them the foundations, adding in this flavor of like, okay, well, this is how this works at scale, or these are some of the greatest things. Because the reality is, as a freshman that's starting today in some of these programs, she's probably going to face completely different threats by the time she graduates, right? And, and that's going to evolve that quickly. So teaching them how to be critical thinkers, analytically and asymmetrically minded, and there's naturally curious, right? To, to make this not just a, a profession, but a, but a passion. And so I enjoy sharing that time. It gives me a lot of energy with students. I, I would tell you what I think they're going to walk into and what everybody is walking into now is this idea of weapons proliferation, right? It, it started with the known or acknowledged use of cyber weapons with Stuxnet. That was 13 years ago. And yeah. now what we're seeing is an ever-increasing number. A shameless plug for Nicole uh, Perlot's book, This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends. Which Oh, I, yeah. That was a fascinating read. <laughs> yeah, she does an extraordinary job of talking about all the things that people probably never know about on how these things are brokered, bought, and used, and how dangerous they are. But where we're going now is, you know, we're giving razor blades to babies and machine guns to teenagers because the assimilation or acquisition of these weapons is just so easy and so profitable now. So what does that mean for the security teams that we have today? Uh, for those of your listeners that either work in a SOC or in a security organization, Think about functionally what you do, organizationally where you're at. And I'm not suggesting there's one model or another that brings it together. But I think in, if you think in terms of time, space, and force, even with the vulnerabilities that you gave today. So here's a, here, here's a force, a vulnerability or an exploit, or probably more of an exploit or something like that. What is the time that you take to, to really get that force in place and how long in that space do you have before it becomes something that can materially damage your organization is how we need to think. And if you think in your, in your own operations today, you know, where do the, where does that threat intelligence function sit and how are you, how well are you integrated and are you focused on, on the right thing? I, I can remember as a squadron commander, gosh, 14 years ago, dealing with this stuff going into a mission brief and, you know, we would be operating maybe in Southwest Asia, but I begin an intelligence brief on cyber capabilities in Bulgaria. Mm -hmm. Is is that relevant? Well, it could be, right? Because yeah. we don't have the traditional boundaries that we know in other domains, but 
it wasn't that. It was intelligence analysts, smart people that are going what they had, not what they needed. And so I think that we're, we, we need to continuously evaluate how we work together, how we organize, how we train, if, if we're going to stay within the decision kind of loop of these adversaries and, and have the most meaningful impact for our own organizations. Does that make sense? That, ooh, I ran, almost ran out of breath there with all that <laughs> long-winded thing. No, it was, it was, I think it's great. I mean, you know, it's funny. Attackers get their inspiration from so many different sources. Yeah. They don't have a, you know, set boundary or a set focus many times. So because of that, right, you mentioned, you know, asymmetrical nature of defending against cybersecurity threats. You know, a lot of these operators are having to be informed across a broad spectrum of different attack vectors, methodologies, so that they can be aware of, you know, not only how to defend against it, but how to mitigate these issues. And that's a huge problem, I think, for for many organizations is just prioritizing, you know, what to focus on, right? Yeah. You've there, There's so much about these topics that make the news, that make a big splash. And a lot of time, it's it's really just how do you prioritize what what matters to your organization? So from your perspective, you mentioned your time working in the military. How has that kind of influenced the type of guidance that you provide in the private sector when these organizations and, and operators are trying to figure out how best to prioritize, you know, what threats to focus on? It's not necessary. I, I, I found that the useful conversations were not at the tactical threat level, right? They were mm-hmm. at the operational, sometimes even the strategic level. Sure. The unit that I took command of initially had a blue team mission. It was in the Air Force. It was well understood. It was well resourced and it was respected, respected. And the nature of it and the size of our organization compared to the size of the Air Force, we would go to a very large base with very well-trained people, skills that typically were not available at the base level very sophisticated tools and we would come in and we would do these analysis and then we leave them or report, wish them well and tell them, hope you hope we see you in uh, to, again in three years. That was not beneficial to that organization. They valued it and was like, wow, look how smart these people are and look at all the information they've gave me, but it, it didn't equip them certainly to, to remediate those things. So I think that you, you need to make sure that you've set conditions to be able to do that, right? Because otherwise you're just chasing millions and millions of vulnerabilities and, and potential exploits every year. So, so our shift was, what are the capabilities that are most critical to the business outcomes or do that? And if you try to protect everything at the same level, you protect nothing. So right. what we were doing is, is we we're aligning resources, skills, technical expertise, and capabilities in a way that made sense across that that risk landscape, you know, an old antich from a combat tour. If somebody said, "Hey, I see a bad guy all the way over there with an AK-47," it was like, "Good to know. You saw that person with a set of binoculars, and they can't possibly hit us. So let's just hold that at risk for right now because I got a bunch of other stuff that are that are that are really important that I need to think about." And so we need to take the same approach there. Are we doing the right? Are we working on the right things? Are we organized, trained, and equipped? to engage on the things that, that are most important. And I, that doesn't mean at the at the expense of everything else. I think right. that what we need to do is, is just start thinking more asymmetrically. And that's across things that we do very 
at scale today, vulnerability management. How do we do that today? Can we move towards more immutability and, and reduce that level of effort so that we can focus on those? And so we don't spend enough time in our industry. And I'm sorry if that offends people, because, but I am part of the community and I feel like I earned that right. But we don't think asymmetrically enough. We've built two mile freight trains that are going five miles an hour. And I think it's time for us to let's take a breath and say, are, is it time to change some things? And I know that's very broad and ambiguous, but that's because you guys have such a wide audience here. I want to make sure that everybody takes it for something that means is meaningful for them and kind of put it through their own gonculator and join us on the conversation in future broadcasts. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, we talk so much about how attackers come from everywhere, right? All walks of life. You know, it's the the idea of supporting diversity of thought, of of mind, of ideas, of diversity of strategies, ultimately, to better creatively defend against these threats. Assuming that the same model of how we defended threats, you know, five, 10 years ago is still going to work today, needs to be challenged regularly. You know, so from your perspective, I know Chris mentioned your efforts to try to give back to the community, to inspire the community. What are efforts that that you're really passionate about to help kind of inspire the next generation of, of defenders who, as you put it, are are going to be faced with an environment that looks very different from the one that, that exists today? Yeah, I try to give them a view of what I think is going to happen in the future, right? Let me teach you what's going on now. Let me teach you some of the fundamentals and the pragmatic way that we deal with these things today. But what happens when in the future you're dealing with the security of AI algorithms? Are you prepared to understand the behavior of an AI algorithm that is perhaps building malware for somebody else? This ties back to skill sets, right? And so if you want to be, uh, sorry for all the military analogies, but sure. you know, give me an opportunity to shamelessly plug for the uh, for the Air Force. If you want to be an F twenty two, yeah, right. Sorry, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. If you want to be the captain of an aircraft carrier, <laughs> there's a there's a path for that. It includes a lot of education, thirty years of experience, so on and so forth. And you know, you have all these gates that you have to get through to to get to the big show. What's that path if you want to be a serious coder? For good or for bad. And, you know, we have a lot of autodidacts out there. People have taught themselves these things very, very effectively. We need to change our model on how we're teaching our people or giving them the opportunities to learn. So, you know, again, full circle back to your question about inspiration is, is like, this is what this is going to look like. Make them curious about what's happening in the future. And also, you know, our budgets are just so tight these days. And I'm not asking for more money necessarily for more technology, but how are you planning for some time and space to give your people to learn and experiment and do those things? And those are really, really heavy returns on investment. They also earn you, and I'm speaking to the leaders in our crowd, these earn you incredible loyalty and, and commitment and the jobs that they're doing and reward for them. They want to stay there. And so I think, yes, the war on talent, quite frankly, isn't something that happened during like in the last couple of years has been going on for about six or seven years. And so if you invest in that way, then, then I think that inspires people and lets them know what's happening. So I, I, I think these are very real challenges that I think our, our newer generation of practitioners that are coming up, they want to get dirty. They want to roll around in this thing. But we got to set the conditions for them to be curious, to look out and, and anticipate some of these things. I mean, think about this for a second. I was it? I'll put a timeline on it, but time moves so fast for me these days. I'm, I'm usually incorrect. 
is it two, three years ago, we were talking about bot attacks, right? We're not yeah. the keyboard on keyboard kind of things, you know? And, and so what does that look like two years from now, three years from now? Think about the freshman that's going to school or the high school student that is in a vocational program. I think also, you know, sorry if you're a big advocate, I, I love teaching and I teach at the collegiate level, but why is it that an 18-year-old through a vocational program that comes out of high school, why can't we take advantage of that? Why don't you, right? I mean, Chris and I picked up, you know, the the mantle when we were 18 years old to do that. And, and, the, and they, we were challenged more than probably we ever have been in our lives. Why can't we do that? And so let's push that inspiration, not at this 18 to 24 year old, but push it back into the thing. So maybe you're feeling some of my passion come out, but you know, you can't, you can't inspire technology. You can't inspire a, com- a computer, but you can inspire a human being. And uh, we spent a lot of time doing that. I was just going to say just everything Dave said, hundred percent agree. And I think that, you know, now the tools are starting to evolve. And again, I promised myself I would never mention chat GPT, but black fog, which is a, a ransomware company that focuses on working, helping uh, SMEs deal with ransomware they came out with the notice today that they're able to use ChatGPT to create malware. It's very tidy ransomware. So the tools are becoming more and more available to everybody. The democratization of the tools is, is getting so big. So people have this readily available. So now we have to train that next generation of warriors that can leverage those tools, but also, you know, think like criminals. And I tell my kids, what do you do for a living, dad? I think like, I think like a crook. And I help people that way. And it's it's a mindset, you know. So Dave, I, I couldn't agree with you more 100%. And that's why I always love talking to you. I, I, I always, you know, I'm so happy you were able to come on the on the podcast this week. Chris was ready to stand at the position of attention and stand to sing the uh, US song. Oh, I, no, I'm standing at attention. <laughs> <laughs> this is my AI AI talk, and I'm, I'm an attention background yes and you know i'm inspired by that what if you're if you're an old fogey like chris and i and you're on here what inspires you what drives you right Right. and how are you sharing that with the people around you to to motivate them if i am writing an ai algorithm things have gone horribly wrong but the idea that this could be a really really incredible capability and it's accelerating so fast that can just do so many amazing things, but it's like anything else, you know, bad guys use cars to to rob banks. Right. I don't know that they do that anymore, but you get my idea. There's lots of things out there that get used for the wrong purposes, but we need to create the opportunities for those. This is all kind of like rainbows and unicorns, maybe it sounds like, but if you're a leader listening to this, think about what inspires you, what interests you. In this weird self-licking ice cream cone, you know, I, I read a lot. And so what I'm finding is I can barely keep up with my reading on evolution of, of, of artificial intelligence and what's going on there. Maybe I can use AI to do my reading and then tell me what's important. I'm just like a weird thing, right? It's just it's kind of interesting. And then I bore the crap out of my wife with all this stuff because she doesn't know anything to care about any of this. So. Yeah. No, I mean. It's 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 insightful. I, I think you mentioned a couple of different things, Dave, that really kind of resonate very closely with a lot of different people that are that are feeling these challenges. One is, you know, while the threats, the tactics, the methodologies evolve over time, it's really about, you know, inspiring creativity among defenders. 
to be able to to think as you mentioned chris like as an attacker as a bad guy right so you know recognizing new technologies and saying hey yeah they can be used for bad they can also be used for good let's see yeah. if we can you know kind of level the playing field here and promote an environment where you you have a team that's willing to experiment and remain creative right that's that's a hard challenge especially with you know the asymmetry of of the problem but it's absolutely important not just from an attrition standpoint but just keeping people aware and cognizant of hey here's how the threat landscape's changing whether you're ready for it or not that is a problem everyone faces and you know i i've seen some of the best organizations adopt a model where they try to cross train people right you know you might be brought in to do one thing one function but over your career get exposed to other areas of defense of offense so that you become a little bit more well-rounded, a little bit able to look around corners and see what's the next thing that's likely to be on the horizon and affect the business. That's a, that's a hard problem and a hard ask, but that's what everyone has to deal with every day. Absolutely. And a little secret, right? You know, all security practitioners want to be great battle buddies to our business partners, right? And like, hey, we want to go do something new or we want to buy something. We want to be in that at that table that says, we're ready. Let's go do that, right? Let's 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 be wildly successful as a team, as an organization, and you can know that I'm be ready to do that. Is, it, is that the conversation you normally have, or is, is your conversation a little bit different? And then on the other side, our business partners know that they need us, and they know they de- genuinely appreciate the importance of what we do as a community. They just don't always know how to integrate it or understand it. And so, if we're using a language that isn't in their vernacular, it, it makes that 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 partnership even more difficult. So I would encourage folks that are listening today and that are on their own journey, think about your communication skills and how you do that. You know, the old antage that it's not what you know, but how you sell it is really, really important. So keep that in mind. Yeah. And one of one of the great ways to do that, and I'll I'll end on this one is is cyber range training is one of the best things you could possibly do for your security teams just because it not just puts you under stress and simulation and, and great stuff there, but it also helps to elevate a lot of those soft skills. Because, you know, as, as a SOC analyst, I typically would never have to talk to a CFO or a, to talk to an executive. But in a, in a simulation, like a cyber age training simulation, you're forced to have those conversations and it, it, it just makes us better because we're, you know, I've said this hundred times. I'll say it hundred times more. We're our own worst enemies. We suck at communicating as practitioners. So we've got to get better. But I think as a leader, you know, I think cyber range training is well worth the investment. I'm just saying, <laughs> I mean, the serial on that platform is just absolutely amazing. What a great source of not only threat intelligence, but learning. I mean, if you want to learn, you'll get yourself a subscription. So there you go. Thank you so much, gentlemen. It's yeah. been an absolute pleasure, Dave. Awesome. Thanks for you having me. Likewise. And you know, before we go, we kind of have a message for our audience. To anyone who's watching or listening, if you have an interesting topic that you want to discuss or questions about threats we've covered or anything else cybersecurity related, send us a DM on Twitter at The Threat Show or leave a comment on our YouTube channel. 
We'd love to hear from you, our audience, and we'll be happy to answer any questions we can. Additionally, if you think you could be a fit for the show as a guest yourself, DM us or click the link that says, hey, you want to be a guest on our YouTube bio or in the description of this video. Thank you for listening and make sure you stay tuned for next week when we cover the rest of the interesting threats. Thanks, guys. Take care, everyone. Stay well. Thank you for tuning into The Threat Show. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and interact with us on Twitter at The Threat Show. Also, be sure to subscribe to Fletch's interactive newsletter and Trending Threats app to go deeper into the stories we discuss and the Threat Index. Be sure to stay tuned to stay ahead of threats.